Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Third grade class had won a contest, and the prize was that they had the invitation, the privilege of going to a large candy factory in their area and had a field day where the manager of the candy factory gave them the grand tour of the entire facility. And they were so excited. Particularly young Tommy. Tommy was a chocolate connoisseur at heart. And so he was taking in all of the sights and the sounds and the smells of the candy factory. Lagged a little bit behind the group, trying to absorb it all. At one point in the tour, the manager gave them a bird's eye view. They went up on a catwalk and they could see this massive floor of this candy factory. And then down below, there were large vats of melted milk chocolate. Oh, that was just what Tommy wanted to see. And he lingered a little longer than the rest of the group there on the catwalk and he leaned over the railing so he could just get a most condensed uh, aroma that he could coming off that vat of chocolate. The rest of the class was alerted by a, a cry and a splash. And they rushed back and looked over the railing and there they saw Tommy up to his neck, standing in gooey sweetness. And they noticed as they looked closer that he had his hands folded and his eyes closed and they could tell that he was whispering a prayer. Oh, they thought, a prayer of desperation. And so they leaned over the rail to catch his words. And here is what they heard. Lord, please help my capacity to be equal to my potential. I feel like that's where we are at this morning and that my prayer this morning is like Tommy's prayer. We have waded out into some deep, deep truths. And there is a certain amount of potential that we have for these truths, but they're really truths about God Himself. They're truths about the eternal purposes of God and salvation. They're really God's thoughts about salvation that are beyond time. And so, as hopeless really as it was for Tommy to be able to take all of the potential that was before him, ours is even much greater. 
because they're infinite, these truths. And we bring our limited, very limited capacities. But it's good that we look into them. It's good that we study them because what we are after is to understand God's purposes to the best of our ability in salvation to see that salvation is all of God and not of us. And in catching a clearer and a deeper understanding of that, it causes the glory, the brightness, the splendor of God to increase in our minds so that our worship of Him thereby increases as well. What we have been looking at is Romans chapter 8, 29 and 30. And in those verses, there are five great words given about the eternal purposes of God in our salvation. And they are foreknowledge or election. Number two, predestination. Number three, calling. Number four, justification. And number five, glorification. We've covered the first two, election and predestination. And we spent last week beginning to look at the word calling. And I told you last week we're going to complete that today. But let me give you a, since we're still on calling, let me give you just a quick quick recap statement of where we were at. I gave you a lot. We were all over Uh, The Word of God last week, it gave you a lot of Scriptures to validate, to give the biblical basis for the truth about God's calling. And as I I am titling it, God's all-conquering call. And it is a call, as we saw last week, that does this. It always accomplishes that for which it calls. It is God's call to an individual that is unsaved to salvation and that call goes out with such power that everyone that God calls is saved. And we talked about that in detail last week. What I want to do is just to set the stage again is take you to one verse and then we're going to look at some examples of the all-conquering call. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll go back to Romans 8 in a minute, so if you've got that open there, put your finger there. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 23 and 24. This is a great verse because, or two verses, because what these two verses do is it includes both types of calling that I shared with you last week. I said, as I started the message, that there's a general call. A call that goes out is to go out to all humanity. It is to preach the gospel to all creation. That every time a preacher shares, or every time you as a follower of Christ presents Christ in the good news of Jesus with a friend, or a co-worker, or a family member, or a neighbor, that that is the general call going out from God's Word. But then there's a special call. There is an all-conquering call that at times God steps into the midst of the general call to certain specific people that He has elected, and He makes that call an all-conquering call that accomplishes what He sends it for. It says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, listen, Paul is talking about his preaching both to Jews and to Gentiles. 
He says in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. And what is the result when Paul preaches Christ crucified? It is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Is that an all-conquering call? No. Some of the Jews or a lot of the Jews and a lot of the Gentiles who hear it, Paul says that message about the Christ crucified, that's ridiculous to them because Christ means the anointed one of God or God Himself. And God crucified to the Jews, that becomes a stumbling block. To the Greeks, that becomes absolute foolishness. So it's just a general call that's going out to those Jews and Greeks. But then look at verse 23 or 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul says there is a difference. There is one group who are not called either Jews or Greeks, Jews or Gentiles. And when the message of Jesus goes out to them, it is foolishness or it's a stumbling block. But when the call of God comes to specific Jews and specific Greeks or Gentiles, what happens is a radical change takes place. And no longer is it a stumbling block or foolishness, but to those who are called, whether they're Jews or Greeks, if they're called, here's what happens. It becomes Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. That's the difference. It's the call of God that makes all the difference. Those who are not called see the preaching of Christ, Jesus crucified as foolishness or a stumbling block. But those who are, all of a sudden, something happens. And what happens is that they're regenerated by the call. The power of the call of God comes to them. And where there was death, there now is life. Where there was blindness, they now see. Where there was deafness, they now hear. Where there was rebellion and enmity in the heart, that's gone. Now there's a new will. Now there's a desire for God. The call has done that. It's a regenerating call. So that now they see the attractiveness, the winsomeness. They see that Christ Jesus is in fact God in human flesh that died to pay for sin and is offering that free gift to them. And they believe it. Why? Because faith is a part of the call. And they repent. Why? Because repentance is a part of the call. And then what do they do? They choose. They choose. Radical difference between verse 23 and verse 24. Same groups of people, but one group, Jews and Gentiles, hear the call. And the other group, Jews and Gentiles, don't. And those that hear... Jesus Christ to them becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's all in the call. If we go now to Romans chapter 8, verse 30, our main text, I want to read that verse and I want to show you how the all-conquering or this effectual or some use the term irresistible call is right in Romans chapter 8 verse 30. 
Again, remember, Paul in 29 and 30 is giving these five words of salvation. And then he gets to verse 30 and giving this third word, he says, and those whom He, God, predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also did what, church? Say it again, He did what? He justified. Those whom He called, He justified. Now we know that no one is justified. That means saved. That means you begin into a right relationship with God. We know that no one enters into a right relationship with God unless they put their faith in Jesus Christ, unless they recognize that they're a sinner, repent of that sin, and put their faith in Jesus. No one is justified unless they do that. However, Paul says that everyone called is justified. Here's what that means. Here's the only thing that that can mean is that the call goes out and it accomplishes that for which it is sent. And it brings new life and faith and repentance so that the person chooses and is justified. Every single time. How do I know that? Because all those who are called are also justified. That's clearly what Paul is saying right here. Everyone called is justified. No one falls through the cracks. In fact, this sequence of five words goes all the way from eternity past to eternity future. It starts with the election or foreknowledge, clear back in eternity past, and then predestination, and then in a moment in history comes the call that brings the life, that gives the faith and repentance that results in a choice of salvation. Then it justifies and takes you all the way to glory in the future. Nobody falls through. Everyone who is foreknown or elected is also glorified. First and last word, every single one of those sequential steps happens. Paul says it right there in 29 and 30. This is all about the call. We're talking about that moment in history, that moment in a person's life that God has elected in eternity past and predestined, that He steps into their life and He places an all-conquering call to them. He steps into a presentation of the gospel by a preacher or by a friend or through the radio or something and He breathes life into that call and that person comes alive, is regenerated and accepts Christ. So what I want to do now is I want to give you Last week, he gave a lot of biblical basis for that. Scripture after Scripture for that. One Scripture today, actually two. Now I want to give you some examples of the all-conquering call. I mentioned this one briefly two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago. First one is Paul. Now just consider the nature of Paul's call. He was Saul. He was enemy number one of Jesus Christ on the planet. He was so antagonistic in his zeal to persecute the followers of Christ that he requested and was given authority to kill and to throw them in prison and to seize their property. And he's on the way to Damascus to carry out that commission that he had requested. And he met Jesus on the road. The resurrected Jesus. Brighter than the noonday sun. Knocked him off his horse. Laying in the dust of the road. 
and he recognizes that he is talking to God. No question. And then he finds out that the God he's talking to is Jesus Christ. Because Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then he calls him to himself and says, I'm going to use you to proclaim my name. And Paul, blind, was led into Damascus. A few days later, God sent a man to pray for him so that he could see again. And immediately, immediately, the number one enemy of Christ became the number one preacher. And he began powerfully proclaiming Jesus Christ. I ask you, was that an all-conquering call? I mean, is there any chance that that call would not have accomplished the salvation for which it was sent? How about Zacchaeus? Remember the story of Zacchaeus? He was a wee little man. A wee little man was he? You ever seen that when you were a kid? Zacchaeus was an extortionist. Zacchaeus lined his pockets as a traitor to his own people, the Jews, by collecting money for the Roman government and taking as much extra as he could so that he could live wealthy. But although he was high on the economic ladder, he was short on the physical stature side, and so he couldn't see over the crowds and he heard that Jesus was coming. And he was curious. But being kind of wise as a serpent, he kind of plotted out what Jesus' trajectory would be in town and he went ahead and he shimmied up a sycamore tree and got a vantage point above the crowds. And he picked his trajectory right because Jesus came right to his tree. But what Zacchaeus could not have foreseen is that Jesus stopped at the tree and then Jesus looked up at the man and then Jesus called him. He said, Zacchaeus, come down. I must stay at your house today. And Zacchaeus heard the call and he came down and a few hours later at his house he stands up with all of his friends in the presence of his friends and Jesus and he says in Luke 19, 8 and 9 and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor and if I have defrauded anyone of anything I restore it fourfold. I tell you, that's a changed man. That's a changed man. And then Jesus definitively identifies the change and he says in verse 9, and Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. He didn't come to that house because he said, I'm going to give all my money away or what I've robbed people of. You know, he came to the house because he had put his faith in Jesus Christ because the call had accomplished what it was sent for. There was a radical change and the fruit of the repentance, the fruit of the change was his willingness to line up his life now with the truth that he had found in Jesus. Cornelius in his household. Peter is called to go to Cornelius' household. 
told by an angel uh, to follow the men that were sent to get him. And he arrives at Cornelius' household and the household is packed with his family and the servants. And Peter, even though it was a Gentile household who by Jewish law, he was not even allowed to enter. He goes in because an angel of the Lord had instructed him to do that. And he began preaching. And as he's preaching Jesus, all of a sudden, the Spirit of God fell upon the people in the household so that they all accepted Christ as their Savior. They put their faith in the message that Peter was preaching about Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God was poured out upon them. That was an effectual call. That was an all-conquering call that swept over that household and accomplished the purpose for which it was sent. How does the call of God become all-conquering? Because it's from God. It doesn't happen every time that the message of the gospel is preached like when I share it or you share it. But at times, God steps into that proclamation and He sends it with His call. And when that happens, it's a done deal. What God wants accomplished is accomplished. Let me give you an example in the physical realm of that that'll help explain the nature of God's all-conquering call unto salvation. It's the story about physical death to life, the story of a friend of Jesus by the name of Lazarus. Lazarus died and Jesus wasn't in the town, Bethany, where Lazarus lived. In fact, he didn't show up for four days after Lazarus' death. Lazarus had been prepared for burial. It was was the custom. He had been wrapped in the strips of linen, placed in the tomb, laid on the cold slab. The stone had been rolled over the tomb to seal it. And four days later, Jesus shows up. And Jesus is standing there outside of the tomb and the mourners are around. Now just picture for a moment. I want you to put yourself in that place. Jesus says, roll the stone away. And the family says, Jesus, He's been there four days. His flesh is rotting by now. It's putrid in the tomb. Don't roll the stone away. Nobody wants that. He says, roll the stone away. You're standing there. You see them roll the stone away. And then you hear Jesus. John eleven forty three. And when Jesus had said these things, He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! Was the call all-conquering? This is God in the flesh sending the call to life. Was it all-conquering? The next verse says, the man who had died came out. You see, 
Christians struggle with this idea, some, with this idea, and I used to. So I, if this is you, I relate to where you're at. I felt this way passionately. S- can struggle with this idea of the call being all-conquering, or another term that's commonly used is irresistible. Well, it's not right. If the call is irresistible, it's not right. Something's not right about that. I want you to just think through this illustration just logically for a minute. And I want to ask you if this makes any sense at all. You're standing there. Jesus calls out. You're peering into the darkness thinking, this guy is either crazy or something out of this world is about to happen. And your eyes are straining to see in the darkness of the cavern of death what would happen. Do you think that this is in any scenario, in any realm of the imagination, an impossibility that through the darkness you hear kind of muffled with obvious linen strips over the mouth, mummified, ah, you know what, Jesus, no thanks. Appreciate the offer, but I think I'll stay right here in the tomb. I mean, is there any scenario where a man that had been laying there, his flesh is rotting, all of a sudden is now alive? He knows he's alive if he's alive. And what he hears out there in the light is his friend's voice, Jesus that has called him back to life saying, Lazarus, come on out here. Is there any way that he's shouting back and saying, you know what, appreciate the offer, but I'll take a rain check. Matter of fact, just forget it, I want to stay here permanently. Hey, you know what, you guys out there gawking, standing around, could you guys do me a favor? You know that stone's rolled back now? These are thin strips of linen. The breeze is getting bad in here. I'm getting cold. And that light, my goodness, I've been in the dark for four days. That's just brutal on my eyes. My pupils are now dilated. Would you please roll the stone back and seal this thing up? I mean, is there any way, folks, is there any scenario in a trillion events like that 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 man is ever going to stay on the slab? The answer is no way. No way. If that would have happened, it would have been more amazing than the miracle itself. You see, I'm not saying that Lazarus, when he was called back to life, no longer had the choice on whether or not he wanted to get up off the slab and come back out into the land of the living. He had that choice. I'm just saying to you that there's no way he's making the choice to stay there. Every time he's making the choice to step out into the light and the life that he has now been given by Jesus Christ's call. And what I'm saying is the same thing is true spiritually. Every time that when the call of God goes out and it takes a person in a far worse place than Lazarus, a person that is dead in sin, a person that has absolutely no ability to understand spiritual truth. We looked at both of those scriptures last week. 
A person that is blinded by the enemy so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We looked at that scripture last week. A person that is in their heart at enmity toward God. We looked at that scripture last week. A person that has no possibility of submitting to the law of God. Why? Because they're bound in sin, slaves to sin. We looked at that scripture last week. See, that's the reality of the spiritual condition of the lost. It's worse than Lazarus laying there mummified on a slab. There is absolutely no hope because they don't only have no life in them to get up and accept spiritual life, but there's an enemy against them holding them down. So what happens is that the call comes, the effectual call, the all-conquering call, and it brings life where there was death. It gives sight where there was blindness. It gives understanding where there had been none. They see themselves for who they are in sin. They see Jesus now as God, very God in the flesh. And the heart, the heart that they had that was hardened and against God, it's not there anymore. They have a soft heart. They have a will that's for God now. And what I'm saying to you is there is no possibility that a person like that is ever going to say, no thanks, roll the stone back over the tomb. I'm staying right here. That's the nature of the all-conquering call. Now let me just, as I wrap this up, as I've done the last three weeks, let me just answer a few questions. By the way, thank you if you've sent questions as we went through this deep, hard subject. I really do appreciate that. I want to help you. I used to so greatly struggle in my own heart with these truths, the election and predestination and the effectual or all-conquering call. So I, if you're there, I know where you're at and I feel for you. And I know the mindset there. It is a desire to hold on to the honor of God. I know that. Matter of fact, I had an individual just tell me between services that when I first started preaching this, he wanted to just come and beat me up. But now he's getting it. it take, you can't grab this in a setting. There was a lot of people, week one, that were very frustrated. I could tell by the emails. I would have been too, 12 years ago. But God has some truths here that we have to process, we have to think through. And as we think through them, I really believe that the Spirit of God will help us to see that they're incredible, beautiful truths that actually give God greater glory than He would get from us without them. So here's a couple of common questions or objections related to the all-conquering call. First of all, if it's true, then... If election is true and God 
then sends an all-conquering call and the irresistible call that accomplishes what he sends it for, then why even evangelize? Why even evangelize? Why even pray for the law? Why pray for my kids? If God's just going to do what God's going to do, why even engage in the process of evangelism? God's going to do it anyway. He's elected from eternity past that he's going to do that, and he steps in into history present into a person's life, and he sends a call that's going to accomplish it every time. Then we what do we even need to do? That? Anything. Let's leave it up to God. Well, the answer to that, I think it's a very legitimate question. I'm not making fun of the question. I used to ask the question myself. The answer is that God not only sovereignly chooses the ends, but he chooses the means to the ends. God not only determines the end result, but he decides the process by which he'll get to the end result. And what he has chosen in his sovereignty to do is that he has chosen to use the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ to be the means by which he steps in at times in places to people and sends the call in an effective way, in an all-conquering way. He has chosen that that's how he's going to do that. So here's what that does to evangelism. Man, it sends the blessing and the need of that through the roof. Because here's what that says to me. When I preach the good news of Jesus, when I share the saving truth about Jesus with you on Sunday or with my neighbors or you share them with your neighbors or your coworkers, that what happens is that a times God steps into that with His miracle and accomplishes what He chooses to accomplish. Guaranteed. I'm going to show you the other side of the coin to try to explain that even deeper. If it wasn't based upon God's all-conquering call, if it was based upon our sharing of the gospel, boy, what kind of pressure would that put on you and me in our sharing of the gospel? Man, if it depended upon me, What if I don't share it quite right? What if I mess up in the sharing of it? Man, I got souls, eternal, immortal souls hanging in the balance whether I'm going to share the gospel of Jesus Christ properly so that they can get saved. Man, I I don't want that pressure. I do not. That's paralyzing. That's not motivational. That's paralyzing. But if it's God's all-conquering call that steps into the midst of a general proclamation of the gospel, then here's what that does for me. It takes the pressure off of me and it says, man, I get to participate with the omnipotent God. He has invited me. He has invited you into the process where he says, here, you do this, and I'm going to, when I know it's the right time, I'm going to use it to bring people into the kingdom. I'm going to let you share with me in the work of seeing eternal destinies of immortals changed. Wow, that's cool. That's motivational. That's encouraging. So, in fact, the idea of election and the all-conquering call does not say no evangelism. It motivates us to run toward evangelism if we think that through and study it, ponder it. We have an incredible privilege to join arms with the omnipotent God in seeing Him save souls. Wow, that's awesome. 
The next question or objection, I'll end with this. If the all-conquering call is true, Pastor Brad, then it seems like what you're saying is that man is forced into salvation. I mean, he just doesn't have a choice. God's call comes, and it always accomplishes. That means he doesn't have anything to say in the matter. God just does it, and man is robotic. It's not what I'm saying at all. Matter of fact, I'm saying something radically different than that. Radically different. It is true that everyone that God calls with this all-conquering call, every one of them come to salvation. But it is not true that anyone can be saved unless they choose. Both of those statements are true. Everyone God calls is saved. But no one is going to be saved unless they choose. Let me show you how both of those are true. You see, prior to salvation, as I said last week, we were dead. We were blind. We couldn't hear. We had no ability to understand spiritual truth. We were in bondage to sin. And we were enemies of God with hard, stone, rebellious hearts. I ask you, can anybody make a choice for Christ in that situation? I tell you, that's when there's no choice. That's when there's absolutely no option to do anything but to remain dead and separated from God and under His wrath. No other choice than that. What is it that gives the choice? It is only when the call comes. It's only when God sends that all-conquering call and in that call He regenerates. He gives life. He gives sight. He gives hearing. He gives understanding. He gives, now listen carefully, He gives a new heart. He gives a new will where there had been open rebellion and resistance and inability to submit to the law of God. Now, God is working in the person both to will and to do. So there is a desire for God where there had never been. There's a desire for Christ where there had never been a desire. So what happens then is the person that has that new will and desire, a heart for God, the number one thing they want to do in the world is make the choice for Jesus. It is a wholehearted choice that they make. It's not them being forced against their will. They have a new will. They want to do what they see now is their need and what they see is the beautiful, winsome offer that Christ is making. There's nothing else in the world they want more than that so that they choose wholeheartedly by their own desire to accept Christ. So it is not against their will. They are not forced. That's how the call of God works in combination with the choice of mankind. So what we're going to do now in the next couple of weeks 
If you put all of that stuff together, those first three words and the two that follow, which we have already spent a lot of time in the past part of Romans on, uh, which is justification and glorification. All of those five words together, the doctrine that emerges there is the perseverance of the saints. And it works like this. That every person saved is going to glory. They're going to persevere until the end because salvation is all of God. Because the God who in eternity past chose and predestined his elect and then in a moment of time called them with an all-conquering call and that everyone that he chose and predestined he calls and everyone he calls he justifies and everyone he justifies he glorifies. That means that no one is falling through the cracks, that the perseverance of the saints is intact and will never change. But now there are scriptures. There are scriptures in the New Testament that on the surface would seem to be contradictory to the perseverance of the saints. Scriptures that seem to say you can be saved and then unsaved or all of the warning scriptures that say he who perseveres to the end will be saved. Now, I'm just going to make this statement. Uh, We'll dig into this more the next week or two. But I have spent time now, not all that I need to, but kind of looking at all of the Scriptures for the perseverance of the saints, this doctrine that we've been covering, and those that seem to speak against it. And I can tell you that there is far more on the side of the perseverance of the saints. And when rightly understood, the ones that look like they contradict it are actually reinforcing it. So what we're going to do in the next couple of weeks is I'm just going to take a few of those maybe more famous passages that seem to speak against this doctrine and try to explain them from a different perspective because God's Word does not contradict itself. It is consistent. It is authoritative. It's from God. So the problem is with our understanding, not with the doctrine. So we'll spend a little bit of time looking at that to wrap up this mini-series here in Romans 8. Would you please stand? I just want to say a prayer as we close here. The worship team comes. It's possible that there are some here this morning that are hearing the call of God to salvation today. That for the first time are realizing they are sinners and deserving of God's punishment and that Jesus Christ is the very Son of God who provided the sacrifice to offer forgiveness to them. If that's happening to you, God's calling you. He's calling you to eternal salvation. So you need to respond in repentance and accept the gift that He wants to freely give you this morning. The rest of you, 
that are believers here, I encourage you, continue to pray through, think through these truths. See that salvation is all of God and let that just amaze you, amaze you what God has done for you. That He is the one who began the good work in you. He's the one that is carrying on the good work in you and He's the one that promises He's going to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus so that it'll be true for you forever. And let that cause the glory of God in your eyes and your heart to rise so that you serve Him with more passion, more fervency. Let's pray. Father, God, thank You that it all makes sense to You. These are tough, deep truths. I pray, God, that You would Help us to put on the mind of Christ. Help us to be thinking to the best of our abilities through the revelation empowerment by your Spirit to understand what we can about our great salvation, your eternal purposes in our great salvation so that we stand in awe of you. But Lord, for those that you might be calling here today. That's you. I'm just going to say a prayer and encourage you with your own words just to place your faith in Christ. Say, Father, I recognize I am a sinner in need of a Savior. See my sin. I haven't seen it before and I see Jesus as the answer the one that has paid the price for my sin and offers me life through his death and resurrection. And I'm just responding to your call to my heart today. And I'm, thank you for choosing me and I'm choosing your son. Thank you for the new life that you've given me. Help me to live it now for you, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.